Thank you, Pastor Todd. Good morning, everyone. If you brought a Bible, please turn with me to John 19. And any uh, preschoolers or children who are headed to Gospel Project, we hope you have a great time together. If you're new with us, uh, our habit on Sunday mornings when we come to the sermon portion of our time together is simply to open up the next passage in the book of the Bible that we're working our way through. We believe that all of God's Word is uh, good and instructive and helpful and applicable to the stuff of everyday life. And so if you're uh, new with us, we've just been working our way through John, and we hope today that this will be an encouragement uh, to you. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 19. We've been studying together the last couple of weeks the specific details surrounding Jesus' execution. Two weeks ago, we looked at the crucifixion itself. Last week, we looked at the pronouncement of Jesus' death. And today, we'll consider Jesus' body being taken down off the cross and then put into a tomb. Now, it might feel like um, a lot to spend three weeks in just a few paragraphs. But, friends, the death of Jesus as a substitute for sinners is the very center point of God's work in the world. And so we are slowing down to consider carefully how that work uh, applies to us today and to all people everywhere as the gospel is shared. In the 17th century, there was a pastor named um, John Flavel who lived in a city called Dartmouth. Now, why that pastor got a cool town called Dartmouth, and I got Tempe, I don't know. But Dartmouth is in the northern part of uh, the UK, and like many Puritans or nonconformists in his day, uh, Flavel faced great uh, hardship as he sought to build up the local church and preach God's Word. He faced a lot of other difficulties too. Uh, For example, his wife in the delivery process of their firstborn uh, died and shortly after the child died as well. He got married again and was married a long time, but then that wife died also. And so this uh, dear brother who was just seeking to labor and build up the church experienced a tremendous hardship in not ways that are dissimilar uh, to many of us as we seek to be faithful to the Lord will also face difficulties. But why do I bring him up? Well, uh, this book is a collection of sermons that John preached over the death of Jesus. And uh, the book is called The Foundation of Life, a Display of Christ in His Essential and Mediatorial Glory. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say that five times fast. Now, this is a collection of 42 sermons. Let me tell you a few of the titles of these messages. Uh, John preached one called uh, The Signal Providence, which directed and ordered the title affixed to the cross of Christ. In other words, what was the name above Jesus as he died? The next sermon was The Manner of Christ's Death in Respect to the Solitariousness Thereof. The one after that, The Manner of Christ's Death in Respect to the Patience Thereof. Christ's funeral, its manner, reasons, and excellent ends. 
four weighty ends of Christ's humiliation explained and applied. On and on and on. These are actually excellent. I encourage you to get them and read them. But here's my point. If Flavel gave his congregation 42, you can give me three, can't you? Yes? Great, because that's what we're doing. Let's learn uh, together today about God's love for us as seen in the manner in which Christ was brought down from the cross and placed into uh, the tomb. So we'll be together this morning in John 19, 38 through 42. And as we read those verses in just a moment, would you look for four things in them as we read them? If you're taking notes, these would be four great things to write down. They'll just be the the movements that we'll take this morning. The first is the fact of Jesus' burial. Second is the significance of Jesus' death. The third is the morticians for Jesus' body. And then finally, we'll look at the place of Jesus' tomb. So we'll spend a little bit of time on each of those four things. I'll ask Tess if she would come now and read for us. She's going to read 1938 through 42. But before she does, Tess just graduated. Isn't that wonderful? Congratulations. And you were baptized how long ago? On Easter Sunday. On Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday. The Lord's doing great things in this sister's life. And would you read for us? Sure. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier and come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid, So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Thank you, Tess, so much. If you haven't met Tess yet, I encourage you to get to know her. Wonderful girl. You got a golf clap. That's weird. If you're going to commit a clap, then you got to go all in. Right? Okay. Let's consider this morning together first uh, the fact of Jesus' burial, or more precisely, his entombment. Uh, church, Jesus died. He was dead. Not kind of dead, not mostly dead, really dead. Jesus' body hung until he was taken down, and then he was put in a tomb. Now just think very quickly in terms of review. 
what had happened in the last roughly 18 hours of Jesus' life. Jesus was praying in a garden, and he was then arrested. He was put through a sham of a judicial process that very likely kept him up all night in which his own countrymen struck him, mocked him, spit on him, made all kinds of false accusations about him. He was then taken before the Romans for more shaming. He faced the shouting of the crowds and the encounters with Pilate and others. He'd been flogged twice, bringing him near death as the flesh was ripped off his back and the soft tissue was exposed. Jesus had a crown of thorns mashed on his head to both mock him and inflict pain upon him. He had been paraded through town like an animal as he carried his cross. Then at the very worst point physically, Jesus was nailed to wood, hosted in the air, hoisted in the air, stripped, naked, in shame. He then gasped for breath after breath after breath as people cast dice for his clothes. But worse than all of that, Jesus became a recipient of the full wrath of God for sinners, for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All the sins of all people who would ever believe were placed upon Christ. The pure one became filthy. The holy one faced our curse. And at the most difficult moment of all, God the Father, as He looked upon the Son in place of sinners, turned away. And just to make sure he was dead, as we considered last week, a spear was then driven through his side. Friends, our text today shows us that Jesus was dead. He didn't look dead. He wasn't in a coma. He was really dead. So he was taken down off that cross and put in a tomb. This is what you do with dead people. You put them in a tomb or you bury them or you cremate them. Friends, because there is a bias against the resurrection, then there are all kinds of stories about what actually happened to Jesus' body, about whether he was actually really, truly dead, about whether his body was then stolen, all kinds of theories. But the plain message of Scripture is true. He was truly dead, truly entombed. He really died. Now, this is so important in the whole biblical story. John was there. John was sure. The Romans, the executioners were there. They were sure. Nicodemus, and Joseph, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, they were there. And as they wrapped his body, they were sure. Those soldiers, as they stood in front of the tomb, they were sure Jesus died. 
Frankly, if you can trust anything, secular or religious, from ancient history, you can trust that Jesus died. Let's consider, secondly, together, the significance of Jesus' death. Now, you're in a church, so you would expect us to be visiting in some way, shape, or form about Christ. But would you consider for a minute how odd this would be if it didn't really happen? Why would people get together to talk about the death of a poor, uneducated, Palestinian Jewish man in the first century? Why is there any significance to this at all if it didn't really happen? I mean, we live in 2018. We've gathered in Tempe, Arizona. This is the other side of the world, generations removed. What is the possible significance of the death and entombment of Jesus? Well, I'm really glad you asked. And now I get to share with you. There are breadcrumbs, if you will. There are hints in just these five verses about the significance of the death of Jesus. Look, for example, at that scripture that spoke of Nicodemus, verse 39. It says, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. We'll talk about Nicodemus in a few minutes, but let's just consider what Nicodemus brought with him. Nicodemus came to the corpse of Jesus with a powdery mix of myrrh and aloes. Now, there are in the room, no doubt, some Bath and Body Works fans. What Nicodemus did is he essentially went to the Jewish Jerusalem equivalent of Bath and Body Works and said, I want to buy everything you have. I want to buy you out. Now, that's really strange, but we don't recognize that because we're not alive in the first century and we're not accustomed to the typical burial procedures of Jewish people. You see, normally when a Jewish person died, you got the body, you washed the body, there was a high dignity, a high value placed on the burial process, and so you would take that body and put a little bit of myrrh and aloes on that body and wrap it with strips of cloth and then place that body in a tomb. That was normal. But Nicodemus came with what? He came with a whole lot more than just a little bit. What does that tell us? It tells us he brought everything Bath and Body Works had. He's, he got everything he could find in Jerusalem in a short amount of time. So what? Well, maybe you remember something that happened back in John chapter 12. Jesus had gathered with some people, and they were enjoying a meal, and in came someone, John tells us, with one pound of an expensive ointment, and she Mary anointed Jesus' feet. One of the disciples, in disgust over this action, said, What are you, crazy? How could you waste one pound? 
on Jesus. When in fact, his, the, that money could have been used to care for a whole lot of poor people. Jesus' response was, leave her alone, for it is preparing me for my burial. Here comes Nicodemus, not with one pound, but with 75. Now, I recognize you didn't come today for a lesson in weights and measures. But hear this. Imagine today the average worker in Tempe. Imagine that worker has lived a long life, worked for years and years and years, making the average dollar's wage every day, and every single dollar they have ever made, they saved. And at the end of their life, they spent that entire amount to go buy a mixture of myrrh, myrrh and aloes. That's what Nicodemus did. He spent the equivalent of an average worker's entire lifetime saving. Why? That's exceedingly odd. And why does John give us this detail in the Gospel of John? Well, this myrrh and aloes mix put on Jesus' body is of tremendous extravagance because John is telling us in the most clear way he can that Nicodemus understood Jesus to be royalty. Nicodemus understood Jesus to be some kind of king. Friends, King Jesus died. And kings deserve an appropriate burial. Few of us in the room are old enough uh, this morning to remember years ago when Princess Diana, who was the Princess of Wales, died in a car crash in Paris. Do you remember watching her funeral? There was, uh, unlike anything I had ever seen until yesterday, there was tremendous pomp and circumstance. And it seemed like the whole world stopped to watch the burial of this royalty. Yesterday, as uh, another royal event happened over in that part of the world, it seemed like the whole world stopped again. I read last night that two billion people watched the royal wedding. Can you imagine the amount of money that went into that? It's really rather unthinkable. Here at Jesus' burial, there are no billions of people watching. There's not even the 12 disciples. But there is Nicodemus. There is Nicodemus recognizing Jesus to be a king and pouring on him extravagance. Jesus' burial didn't attract the whole attention of the world at the time. But it is a message that has been attracting many around the world ever since. Because this is the message that Jesus, the King, died in order that we sinners might live. The burial of Jesus both solidified his self-sacrifice and demonstrated his status as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
But we discover Jesus' death and the significance of it, not just in John 19, but all throughout the writings of John. Earlier in this book, John chapter 10, Jesus himself had said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Friends, why did Jesus die? What is the significance of his death? The significance of his death is the good shepherd recognized there are people who are in need of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the good shepherd, God himself, Jesus incarnate to lay down his life so that we might live. The Apostle John, years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, and he had spent his life from that point on proclaiming that he too, like Nicodemus, believed this is King Jesus. He wrote more letters. One of them is called 1 John, and he wrote of Jesus' death, and he said this, 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, wrath-taker, for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What is the significance of Jesus' death and His burial? Friends, it's nothing less than the love of God. I don't know what circumstances brought you here this morning or the inner posture of your heart, the things you've been wrestling with, maybe the stuff you haven't vocalized to anybody. But brother, sister, whatever you face, whatever doubts you're struggling with, whatever fears you might have, whatever difficulties you're anticipating in the coming weeks and months, whatever lack of confidence you might have in yourself, whatever struggle you might be in to believe God, one thing you can be sure of, one thing you don't need to look internally of to find some physical warm feeling about, but rather look externally outward to the Word of God and the facts of history, is that Jesus died that Jesus was buried, and that in that, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so you are loved. The perfect, unending love of God, Christian, is yours. You need never fear the wrath of God, the hatred of God, the outpouring of discipline, for sin from God. Because Jesus took all of that. How do you know that God loves you? You know that God loves you because Jesus died. Because He took your place. Because He was buried on your behalf. And that perfect love of God that has shown, or if you will, flowed into your heart, Christian, is not supposed to stop there. Christians are not, if you can continue that analogy, a a dead sea 
We're not to become putrid water that doesn't flow out to bless others. We are instead meant to be, through the Holy Spirit, a life-giving stream of gospel water pouring out to bless all kinds of people. John's way of putting that was there in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, who's the one another? It's first and foremost. It's fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the people of God. Friends, you and I, as followers of Jesus, won't every day, every moment, trust in, recognize, believe, submit to, enjoy the truth that we are loved by God. Whether it's internal responses to temptation or extreme external difficulties, friends, there will be days in which we doubt and question and struggle with, does God really love me? Can I take God at His word? I know He says He loves me, but I don't feel loved and my circumstances don't look as though I'm loved. And how is it that God would help you to remain in His love? Well, a principal way is that the people of God will be literal hands and feet showing you the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. This is part and parcel of what the church is for. It's to be the body of Christ, the family of God, that we can help each other. And so the love of God that we know is ours in Christ is meant to flow out into the church whereby we love one another to show each other and help each other remain in the faith, remembering how good God is. Our thoughts towards God will not always be strong. Our consistency of belief won't always be consistent. But through the relationships we have as covenanted members of Church on Mill, we're meant to strengthen each other. Tonight as we gather together in our members meeting, we'll be talking more about how this works, and I hope you'll be here to be encouraged. And in just a few minutes, we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and we do that as a communal act through which we recount together what Christ has done for us. And then, of course, this love doesn't stop with us, but is meant to spill out then into Tempe and beyond as we tell more and more and more people the truth about the love of Christ available through the gospel of Christ. A love that's for all kinds of people from all kinds of places who are embroiled in all kinds of difficulties. That all kinds of people might come to believe and trust and rest in Christ. This is why Jesus died. And it is forever the work the church will be doing, both here and around the world. Amen? Now third, let's consider the morticians for Jesus' body. I'm not sure I've ever said that word in church. That's exceedingly weird. Why would we talk about morticians? Well, because it's an extremely significant point in the story. Two very unlikely men came to take care of Jesus' corpse. Joseph, not Jesus' father, another Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and a guy named Nicodemus. 
First, would you consider with me some positives about these guys? Joseph is mentioned in every gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But this is the only place in which anything is told to us about Joseph. Apparently, his actions were significant, and for all time, God wanted us to know exactly what he did and who he was. If you piece together the story from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Joseph was an important guy. He was a prominent guy. He was a wealthy guy. He was a member of something called the Sanhedrin. Now, think of um, our Supreme Court here in the United States. So a, a great, respected office for life that was all about representing and keeping the law. But think also of a, a spiritual, weighty, significant, religious office. And that's something like what the Sanhedrin was. This was a guy accustomed to power. He was accustomed to being looked at when he came in the room and thought of as important. But one of the gospel writers even tells us that he was an upright man, a man that loved God, a man that wanted the kingdom to come. That's Joseph. And then there's this other character, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Jesus called him the teacher of Israel. So this was a guy accustomed to telling people what God says and what it meant. The same Nicodemus who in John 3 had come to spend time with Jesus and ask him questions. Now, what did they do? Well, one of them went to ask Pilate, can we have the body of Jesus? Why did they do that? Well, because the bodies were normally left on the cross. For the sun to burn, the flesh to rot, the vultures to eat. And if that didn't happen, then crucified bodies were taken and thrown into mass graves in order to, as the last act with that corpse, heap more shame on them. And so Joseph's actions are exceptionally strange because he went beyond the very group that wanted Jesus killed, the ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, in order to ask for the body. And then Nicodemus the one who was massively confused about Jesus back in John 3, went and spent a lifetime of savings in order to get the myrrh and aloes. Why does John give us this level of detail? Well, contrary to what it might feel like at the moment, it's not so dorky preachers can draw out the message as long as possible. Now, there's something exceedingly, exceptionally, helpfully important for us in these two men. See, in John 3, Nicodemus isn't viewed in a positive light. This is the guy who knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards, and yet Jesus said to him, Are are you a teacher? and you don't understand the most basic truth about the kingdom, you got to be reborn to be part 
And Joseph, we're told here in, in these five verses, was a coward. Joseph had apparently somewhere along the way come to become something of a follower of Jesus. And yet, because of peer pressure, he kept that followship, that discipleship, private. So, think sixth grade boy who is afraid of peer pressure. And so he won't speak up about his belief in Christ. Joseph was not an exceptional person. Nicodemus was not an exceptional person. So if they're not given to us in detail in order to show us what great people they are, then why all this trouble with who took him down and how much spices were bought? Friend, the point being made to us is that something about the death of Jesus caused these two men to come forward in belief. Something about the death of Jesus, even more than the life of Jesus, brought these men to the point of a more full recognition of who Jesus was. And in such a way that they were willing to, at great risk, at great cost, come out, if you will, with their trust in Christ. Apparently, Jesus' death had made who He was so clear that they now were ready to stake their belief in Him. Why did that happen? Well, maybe it's because of the passage we read last week, which was a prophecy reaching back to Zechariah. Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they, Joseph and Nicodemus, so that they will mourn for him as one mourns for a child and weep bitterly over him. Friends, it seems that they were part of the very fulfillment of what God had said all along would happen. To make that even clearer, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there will be a fountain opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Perhaps what happened is quite literally, as the spear was thrust into Jesus' side and out came water and blood, God's Spirit convicted Nicodemus and convicted Joseph that they, in fact, were watching the king die. And that from that side of Christ flowed the very cleansing of God for their sin and the very forgiveness of their guilt. And so overwhelming were those twin facts that these men who had been confused and had been cowards now in a most public way in a way that not even the 12 disciples would, said, I'm with Jesus. 
non-Christian friend here today, don't miss the message. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the message that God is in the business of transforming people. People who can move from darkness to light, from guilt to innocence, from filth to purity, from spiritually dead to joyfully alive. That's what God does. When you look upon Jesus and come to believe in His death and transfer trust off of yourself onto Him, then friend, you'll find that God radically changes you. A change that could move you, friend, from being a person enwrapped in yourself to being a person wrapped by a Savior in a love that is more rich, more full, more unconditional than you could ever imagine. A love that can compel you to live life no longer for yourself, but for God. And this is the best way to live. I tell you from personal experience, as one who was the chief of sinners, the most selfish of all people, that there is a God whose gospel transforms. Joseph and Nicodemus experienced this, and you can too. And Christian, brother or sister, may you too not miss the message. God is continuing to transform people. There is no mistake so big that God will ever wash His hands of you. There is no sin struggle so deep. There is no character flaw so grand that the tap water, if you will, of God's redeeming love will cease to flow. God loves you because He loves you. And so you can forever remain confident in the fact that Christ died, and because He died, then you are held securely by Him in love. Now, how is it that we remain in that love? As we said earlier, it's very much wrapped up in us sticking together in the love of God as we hold each other up and help each other to continue to believe. Friend, can you think back over the last year, two years, five years, Christian of your life, and see that there are things I was doing back then that I no longer find the need for at all. Because my love of God has expanded as I've come to see more and more richly Christ who died for me. This is the work God's doing in our lives as He's transforming us just like He transformed Nicodemus and Joseph. And may we help each other go public with our belief. For there is a world all around us desperately in need of seeing Christ and hearing the gospel. And how will that happen? Well, it's through the work of the church. As we love our communities, as we care for our neighbors, as we show hospitality, as we meet the needs of everyday people in everyday life, 
and thereby communicate to them in proclamation the truth that Jesus is changing us. And therefore, He can change them too. Finally, would you consider with me the place of Jesus' tomb? You'll notice in verse 41 or 31 that Jesus was buried or entombed in a new tomb in a garden. Now, zoom out, if you would, from those five verses and consider the picture more broadly painted for us. One of the difficulties in going through a a lengthy book in the Bible over a period of months is it can cause us to miss how the the book has been painting a picture all the way through. So in like 90 seconds, let me try to do that for you. John chapter 1, right out of the gate, we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Jesus, the Word, was the one that created all things. And so if Jesus created all things, then Jesus created the original garden. And Jesus created Adam and Eve. Now, if we fast forward from John chapter 1 all the way through to today, then we'll miss some things. So if we slow down just a little bit more, John chapter 18, verse 1, we see Jesus in a garden meeting temptation. His temptation was, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Those details are given to us in the other Gospels. Jesus is facing the temptation to want to turn away from the cross. And yet, unlike Adam, who in the garden faced temptation and sinned, Jesus, in a garden, faced temptation and remained pure. He did what Adam was supposed to do. He did what all of Israel was supposed to do. He did what you and I, when we face temptation, are supposed to do in a garden. Then in verse 42 that we looked at today, Jesus was buried in a garden. And then in chapter 20, verse 15, we'll find Jesus walking out of a new tomb with a new body in a... I'm a a thick-headed knucklehead. But this is pretty clear. Genesis 1 to... Revelation 22 is painting one broad, brilliantly, wonderfully clear message. God is making a people for himself. And in Jesus, there is a new humanity. Jesus didn't stay dead. He was resurrected in a new body, the body like you and I will be given. Jesus was put in a new tomb to show that he was the only one put in there because the grave couldn't hold him. He came out victorious. And Christian, you will too. Isn't this the most wonderful news? 
Friends, new life in Christ flows from the new tomb in that garden where all things are being made new through Christ. Christian, whatever you face in the coming day or have brought with you today, that message is sufficient to meet every need. There's a king who's ruling and reigning. And he is the prototype of what we all will receive. Resurrected bodies in which we will live with him forever. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you that in that first garden as Adam and Eve sinned, and as the curse fell upon humanity and everything evil and hard that has ever happened since began. That even then, Genesis chapter 3, you promised that one day one would come who would crush the head of Satan. Jesus is that one. Jesus died the death that we deserved in order that we could be given His life, which we don't deserve. Jesus, being placed in that tomb, conquered sin, death, the devil. And three days later, as He walked out in that resurrected body, He showed that His sacrifice was, in fact, acceptable. Father, thank you that the new heavens and the new earth have begun. That work of you renewing all things is already happening. It's happening as you individually rescue people out of sin and put them into right relationship with you. We thank you, Lord, that for many of us that has happened. We praise you for your love. We pray for any in the room today who have yet to believe that message, that they would now if they have come to recognize it to be true. Or in just a minute as we take the Lord's Supper, that they would sit and prayerfully ponder the significance and ask whoever they came with, tell me more. Father, help us as a church to live in this reality, the reality that Christ didn't stay in the tomb. And whatever we have brought with us, may we turn from sin and enjoy your love together as one people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Around the room, there's a couple of uh, stations, two here in the front, another in the back. And at those stations, you'll find a little bit of bread in a cup. This is meant to signify for us this morning the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And if Christ has, in fact, rescued you, redeemed you, and you have made a commitment to a church, you're part of a covenant community, then we would invite you this morning to simply move out from your chair to one of these stations and take that bread and cup. And then with another brother or sister to, in prayer, remember the broken body and shed blood of Christ 
And as you literally physically swallow those elements to experience afresh and anew the love of God for us. If you're not yet a believer, would you consider together today the significance of this message that Christ came and died and rose again. And if you would entrust yourself to him, he will save you too. So would you come now as we sing?